Duncan Platt, along with co-host Christopher Benick, and welcome to the Superposition Podcast, a podcast about theologically informed digital technology. So what's new with you, Chris? What's happening? Well, it's Holy Week, so we've been busy with uh, everything that goes along with that. It's been an interesting week. How about you? I bet. I bet. Um, no, it's been a, an interesting week. Um, just... Uh, you know, busy with work. It, it, at the, on the one hand, I feel like we're, I'm busier than ever, and on the other, I, I'm not sure if I'll have work next week. So it's a, it's an interesting season, you know. Do you by any chance watch uh, Westworld? You know, I watched the first season, and I I got really into it, and I haven't watched since. So. So it's radically different in this season that it's been. Oh, really? I mean, radically different, and. Um, you know, it's like if people aren't watching it, you can't really give it away because it's, you know, but, but the short of it is, is they're in this, uh, the new main character, uh, has realized that he is essentially in a system that he can't get out of and it's being controlled. Uh, they've essentially created a super computer that knows all the details of everybody's lives and they only give you certain paths that you can follow so no matter what you try to do there's only certain things you can achieve in your life because your life is essentially predestined for you because of of the options they give you in society and so the the essentially the you know super ai robots are trying to break that system and they've recruited his help as to how they will they will start a revolution to break the, the system. So it's kind of, I don't know if you like, I don't know what your thoughts are on, since we're jumping right in, but your thoughts are, you know, on simulation theory, whether we're in a giant simulation or not. Uh, but, um, you know, I don't necessarily think we're in a simulation insofar as I don't think there's some weird alien overlords overseeing us. But, uh, but I do think there's something to be said about you know, us yeah. being in a digital system, right? Like where everything in reality can have a one or a zero ascribed to it. Yeah. Uh, and so I think it's really interesting to think about what are the systems that we get stuck into. Uh, it's almost like if when people talk about the simulation, they talk about uh, the old video game, The Sims, right? Uh -huh. And so, uh, and it's almost like uh, in The Sims, you're, it's like you're playing God and then you make your little Sims and then they get into trouble while you're gone and then you come back and fix them, you know? Yeah. And so, so uh, Westworld has taken that turn. I just think it's a fascinating thing when you start thinking about it because it makes me wonder with all the coronavirus stuff, what are the systems that we have, gotten to a place where we just think that we're we have to stay in those systems that we don't we couldn't do something another way so now we're all obviously indoors doing stuff indoors nobody would have imagined that six months ago no one would have thought of that as a possibility whatsoever so what are the other things that we just take for granted right like we just assume uh, you know, that there's things that we can't do, but maybe there are things we can do. Maybe there's things we need to do to break the systems that we're in. So kind of an interesting thing, uh, particularly like this week and Holy Week, because nothing in the church is happening the way it has historically happened uh, for the church, right? And so uh, it's not that the church hasn't been in self-quarantine before, because it has a long time ago, but um, 
but kind of in the modern era, you know, we haven't had church this way. So, so it's just an interesting uh, thing as we go through our weeks to go, well, I wonder what, you know, what little thing I'm doing uh, might be able to be disrupted in a way where maybe I can do it a different way. So I don't know. It's funny that you mentioned that it's, well, for the context of everyone else. Um, so I'm a, I'm a, video game enthusiast it's uh it's it's always been a passion and a hobby of mine and i've always found the the creative outlet both as someone who plays that and as as, uh, as someone who's dabbled in in game development is something that is such a fascinating mechanism to tell stories in but because my mind is from a very young age been formed by that context i i have caught myself a couple of times and funny enough in the last week thinking about simulation theory, um, you know, as we move towards virtual reality and, and really building out our lives in a digital sphere, largely because of coronavirus and, and what's happening all around the world right now, it, it struck me as just odd thinking, you know, let's say this was a simulation and how we're, you know, we're in a construct creating a construct uh, which is, is it just blows my mind, but I, as ludicrous as that sounds, um, I, I find it uh, fascinating just thinking about what we have done in terms of creating virtual worlds. You know, it, it just uh, it just uh, sometimes hurts my brain when I think about that. And I think just on a on a different perspective on that. You know, as you as you talk about simulation, as you talk about the the premise of Westworld in the in the newer seasons, I'm reminded by as we think about these worlds, these make believe worlds, uh, the idea of a simulation is maybe uh, a misnomer. Another term that we could use as well as the idea of a game engine, which creates opportunity for a, a video game player to do certain things but it also lays the ground rules the foundational rules of what you're allowed to do and not allowed to do and in that instance i sometimes wonder about how we think about the world you know there are certain rules that you can't challenge uh, we have physics um, like gravity yeah right we have gravity and, and all of these things you know you find in video game engines as well the way the way gravity works the way physics works when something is hit how does it respond um, so there are certain fundamentals you can't challenge, but at the same time as in video games, you're, you're presented with the way things should work, but there's always, there's always another way and there's always ways to get behind that, be that the design of the game or not. I'm sometimes challenged by that in life is, you know, we've accepted, we've accepted the way things should be the status quo, um, how historically we've done things because it works and that's how we've done things and just talking about the church in this crisis you know i think we're 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 almost forced to change gears uh and as with a, a manual stick shift car uh, a lot of us are not accustomed to doing that so we change gears without pressing on the clutch and suddenly there's a big noise and suddenly there's a disruption and we don't know what to do um but i think we we firstly have to recognize that we can change gears and that changing gears is not necessarily a bad thing. So yeah, it's an interesting season. It's an interesting time just challenging the simulation, if you will, right? Just well, the, it's interesting the too, because we, we 
we assume because for example easter we've we've celebrated easter the way we have for you know so many hundreds and of years now that that the way we're going to do it this year is somehow just not you know it's not like the good old days in easter but if you actually think about you know what happened at easter like the disciples are like alone and terrified they don't know what's going to happen this might be the closest thing to easter that we've had in a very long time right like to real easter if you think about it and so um and because we're actually we feel those emotions because of different reasons right uh but we we're feeling those those uh so we can actually kind of empathize a little bit more maybe with with where the the gospel narrative was going and and maybe that's an opportunity for growth you know i i um i heard somebody um talk about hemingway and how um uh, a big theme in hemingway's writings was waiting uh and that what that that waiting did was it didn't it didn't break us down it didn't break us ultimately it revealed who we are uh in it and so what is is this time of waiting how is it revealing who we are right now and i think that's that's an interesting premise for us to just kind of be looking around and going okay well why are we doing the things that we need to do are we ever going to go back to shaking hands with one another you know what I mean? Like, are, are we, you know, like every time we touch our face now, are we, are we going to be like, Oh no, I, you know, like, um, you know, like I've washed my hands more than I've probably washed my hand this week. I've washed my hands more than probably cumulatively. I've washed my hands in my life. Right. Like, and so it's like, you, cause we've, you know, we've pivoted things that we think are important. So I, it makes me wonder what are the other things that you know, that we're going to have to pivot, um, you know, or, or what are the kind of things that are being recommended that we pivot to, you know? And so, yeah, yeah, sure. Wow. 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 Yeah. It's, I think we're going to be astounded when we look back a year from now in just how fundamentally the world has changed. The way we do business has changed. The way we do church has changed the way we do personal self-care has changed and how we interact with one another. I think all of that will be changed. Um, and, and I'm curious to, to also understand, as you say, you know, will we be shaking hands? What, is, what does that look like if we stop doing that as a society? It's such a small thing, but it's, but it's been such a cultural thing for such a, a long time. Well, this is this is kind of a, actually an easy pivot into uh, one of the articles that I had. So if you don't mind, I, I'm gonna yeah, go bring ahead. that in. So it's like, um, so you know, we one thing I've kind of been wondering is there's been a bunch of pastors who have got online who've not been online before, right? And they didn't they didn't stream, they didn't do these things. And on on and one side, it's like great to see like kind of the adaptiveness of the church. On the other part of that, I kind of wonder, like, are we just creating, uh, are we just kind of creating a bunch of content that we won't ever use again? And uh, it's it's always been fascinating to me that uh, pastors, we write sermons, we preach sermons, and then those sermons go either in a physical or a digital file usually never to be seen again unless some part of them is pulled out for a sermon later down the road right and so it's like we are creating content all the time but it's not content that continues to be used uh, which i think the digital space provides an opportunity to change that 
I also though, don't see how the that content though is actually being aggregated in any helpful way right now. Uh, and I also, uh, you know, I I saw an article in Christianity Today that the title is "Coronavirus Searches Lead Millions to Hear About Jesus," and it's talking about how uh, there have been all these folks who have, um, and and this is kind of more, you know. Baptist language than I am, but there's talking about how they're being, being, uh, being saved. Um, and then at one point in the article, I think it goes on to say that, but then only 40 of the 40 percent of those people actually like come back to be engaged. Right. So, so it, it's like, Oh yeah, I make a commitment to Christ, but then only 40% of those people follow up on, on that. Uh, and so, and, and that's probably more based on the church than the people I would guess in a, in a lot of ways, or maybe there's some even split of that, but, but it makes me wonder long-term, like, are we creating some kind of fad, uh, right now? Like are all these people who are doing stuff online, are they going to continue to have a digital presence online? Or if everybody could go back tomorrow, you know, if everybody said, Oh, you know, guess what? Uh, you know, it's all a big joke. Uh, and whoever's running the simulation says, uh, you, you can have Easter services just like normal now. Um, aside from being, you know, wildly unprepared to do that right now, you know, w- would people do that? Uh, would they go back and just say, well, forget this digital piece or will they continue to do it? Um, and, and I wonder if there's a little bit of, um, uh, inauthenticness into what we're doing as, as far as, uh, the work that we're doing online. If right now there's a little bit of we're just kind of faking it because we don't know how to actually do this, so so everybody just fake it and that's okay and we're giving everyone a pass, you know what I mean? But but will that like develop into an authentic relationship or not? Because what it seems to me is that the people who really do online ministry well, they've actually they've kind of put themselves fully in that. Um, and they've invested in it in in the ways that you need to invest, which is sometimes not trivial and they've really engaged in it. So they're, you know, the, the churches that do online ministry, the most effectively, they have put tons of money into this. Uh, it's been a major, you know, it's not, they're not pivoting right now. Like this is what they've done to begin to, you know, uh, and so it'll be interesting to me to see what, you know, is that what the rest of the church is going to try to be, or are they going to try to have elements of that? Uh, and can you do it without being fully in it? Uh, I don't know. Uh, it seems to me that it's um, like, think about the people who are experts, uh, even in gaming, because you were talking about gaming, the people who are like the top level streaming gamers right now, those people have been gaming forever, right? Like, I mean, they've been gaming for a decade or more uh, to, sure. to be the top people, right? So if it takes that long to be the top person there, is it, it probably makes sense. It's going to take that long, just like it takes to build any ministry, you know, a good three to five years that it would take people's actual investment in a, in a real way for them to develop a real ministry that way. Uh, and you know, y- you can go and jump on and, and be a streamer and you're not going to be, you know, uh, ninja, uh, you know, out there with, uh, you know, 4 million followers or whatever, you know, showing up on mixer. Sure. Um, 
So, so it's interesting just to think about, you know, will people continue to do that or not? And then are we really, is our engagement right now, is it legitimate online or is it, um, you know, is this, are we doing things? Are we padding the numbers to make ourselves feel better? You know, uh, now it's like more people hear about Jesus. Well, maybe, yeah. I mean, um, you know, there's more voices talking about Jesus, uh, but does that mean more people are actually formationally being transformed into followers of Jesus? Or does that mean they just, it's another soundbite uh, along with, um, you know, Trump tweets and whatever is coming across the CNN news line, you know, like, um, and, and I don't know if that's better for the kingdom or, or worse in some ways, because it's not necessarily distinguishing. Uh, it feels like there's a, there's a lot of, it's like, oh, there's a lot of the same now. Uh, and, and maybe at some point, the person who's a Christian goes, you know what? There's just too much content. I don't know that I want any of that content. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. But it'll be interesting to see how it plays out over time. I was just, I thought it was really interesting that the article was titled in a way where it was like millions to hear about Jesus. And it's like, okay, yeah, I get that. But but then at the same time, the article is saying, yeah, but most of those people aren't actually, they don't turn into devout followers of Jesus. Uh, and so it's like, okay, well, and that might not be that different from, you know, our physical experience of church either, you know, but um, the question is, is will that stick around or not? So, so I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it, I don't know if it will or not. And I think part of that too is because we don't have a very robust um, even though there's a lot of folks who would like to jump in at this point and kind of say, Hey, look, I've been online forever. It's like, okay, yeah, we've, you know, most of us have been online forever, right. Uh, at this point, but, uh, we don't have a really, and the church hasn't spent a lot of time developing its theology, um, for the digital world. There is not a real substantial, and the, and the proof of that is, um, you know, if you start talking about communion in churches, um, People don't know, you know, a lot of churches are having big debates now about, well, can we do digital communion or not? Right. right. And, wow. and, and so what, you know, um, why is that? Well, it's because for whatever reason, we didn't think it was important to talk about that prior to having, you know, a global pandemic. Um, and so if we didn't think it was that important, then is this, and we really believe that formation is what shapes a person. Do we think that this is going to be enough of a formative move for us being online, that it's going to pivot the church in a large scale. I, I don't know. I mean, what do you, what do you think? I think that's a fascinating question. And, and it's, I mean, there's, there's a couple of things that you mentioned that I, that I, you know, have some thoughts on, but just almost working retroactively. I was watching a, um, a live stream this morning as I was doing research on, on what people are doing in terms of live streams today on, on Good Friday. And I stumbled upon a, a Catholic service and they were, they were facilitating mass and everyone, and I say everyone, there were maybe six people there because of course, no one's allowed to to come together now. But for the live stream purposes, the bishops and and everyone else in that context decided to forego uh, taking communion. 
And I found it really interesting. And so they were just talking about the fact that no one else can do that right now. So they're going to forego in an, in an act of, um, you know, a shared burden, if you yeah. will. Yeah. And I just found that interesting. I, I mean, I paused for a second and I just thought about that and I thought, wow, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's obviously a challenge uh, that, that, churches need to address and it's and it's a challenge that they'll keep running into unless they they find a creative solution to that that is theologically sound and so it's a it's a fascinating question and 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 you know just in thinking in this um it's i don't think that firstly and this is just my opinion i'm not a doctor but i don't think that this is going to to as you said, the sim this simulation is not going to end anytime soon. This this pandemic that we are facing right now, this scenario, is going to continue playing out. And, and even if it does get better, say in the United States, the rest of the world is still is, is still facing this, and some have only recently really started facing this. So we're really at the the beginning of this, and and my hope is that it is resolved sooner than later. Uh, but it is it is an issue, and, and maybe just a, a quick um, a quick note on that. As I was reading, uh, doing some reading today, I also found an interesting resource from UNESCO, and they say that 91% of of enrolled learners around the globe, 1.5 billion people, are not able to go to school because of COVID-19 and that's that and that's over 188 countries around the world so just the impact of this is is so dramatic it's it's really it's really astounding I I almost think I almost think that the schools will pivot more quickly than churches will I think churches are are more likely to go back to what they did before yeah. uh and you know, instead of kind of tackling some of these issues, it'll be like, oh, well, you know, but, but I agree with you. I don't think, and, and look, um, this is not my expertise either, but uh, it seems to me just observationally that this, there's not an easy solution to this, right? Because wow. you, you can't have a vaccine for, uh, for at least, you know, 18 months is what I say. I think what they say, the, you know, the, the process is to approving a, vac a vaccination. So you have 18 months. Um, we are not building herd immunity right now. What, what the goal is, is to try to not overwhelm hospitals, right? And so, so say in Florida here, there's uh, 15,000 people that have coronavirus. Um, you know, a, sm a smaller percentage of that will actually fill the hospitals here. Right. And they'll have to build extra beds if they do that. So yep. just from Miami to, to West Palm Beach, there's there's at least seven million people in the corridor uh, in that corridor. They, we're talking about a fraction of the people who have coronavirus right now. And until there's so you can't just start meeting again and you're yep. not going to completely wipe it out uh, at that point, or you're, yep. you know, you're going to have to constantly be testing people all the time. Yep. We don't know if we can get it, you know, again. Um, and, sure. and I think, you know, I think, and I think quite frankly, there's bigger issues coming uh, in South Florida. I think the bigger issue that's coming is hurricane season. Uh, you know, I mean, what happens when hurricanes at? And, and I've been 
just saying to people, hey, what's your hurricane season plan? Because people here, they just kind of, they've been through enough hurricanes where they don't think about it. Well, now it's not like you can just go to grandma's house wherever because you could be bringing coronavirus to, to grandma's house. So this is going to radically disrupt things. And, and I just, I think the schools will adapt because I think they'll have to. There'll be a, there's an expectation that, um, you know, that we've got to keep moving our kids forward. Uh, and if people aren't able to send their kids to public schools, uh, they'll try to figure out, you know, options online or their kids won't go. And, and I think the thing that we're kind of wildly overlooking is, hey, you and I, we, we have the privilege of actually being able to self-isolate. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Because we, we have homes we can go to. We have equipment we can talk about this. The vast majority of the world, they don't have that, uh, that privilege. Uh, there's, yeah. you know, in developing countries, they don't have a choice to, to, you know, have someone deliver them groceries or even go into grocery store where it's safe to, they've got to, you know. And so, um, you know, and I don't know if you saw like India, India the, uh, the immigrants that were that were leaving that were immigrant workers, but they were just in mass. I mean, they're just like like cattle to one another trying to leave the country to go home wow. because they didn't have work. Well, if COVID nineteen's there, you know what I mean? And and we're not talking about the my understanding is looking into this a little bit more. So I you know, I'm like most people have been kind of wildly ignorant as to as you know, how to, how's this start and what's going on. But my understanding is there's seven versions of coronavirus at this point. And so they name them after the year they were found in. Uh, so, uh, they're, are designated in. So even though, you know, it's 2020 and that's when coronavirus is ripping us up, it's, you know, coronavirus night, it's COVID-19 because of, of last year. And it, and it's also, I guess, a genetic mutation from SARS. So it's like, like SARS-2, essentially, which we're not talking about either, right? So we're so we could come up with we could come up with a vaccine, but there's already been six other versions, yeah. And so we could have it again. And so so what happens is you have this thing, and then I think what it forces us to kind of do is how do we step back and look at the systemic piece and say, well, um, what does this mean about our our re- our expectations of ourselves for caring for people who can't care for themselves. Uh, what's being done to protect the homeless population? What's being done to protect uh, the poor? Um, and and how do we, you know, what does the church do for that? Because, you know, while we're saying, oh, millions of people are hearing online, well, what about people that don't even have a cell phone yet? Uh, what about the more than half the people that aren't you know, engaged online at all. Uh, you know, what's their interaction? And we're not having those conversations. Um, you know, it, it's almost a, from a certain level of privilege that we're having the conversations that we're having. And so I, I don't know how we pivot that necessarily, right? You were saying yeah. there was an article about uh, the World Health Organization encouraging, what were you saying they were encouraging us to do? Yeah, so I, again, as a gamer, I, I, I think, you know, I salute the World Health Organization for their absolute wisdom, but they they are now recommending that people pick up video games, uh, which I think is brilliant, and spend more time indoors and connecting with others socially using video games like Minecraft or 
or whatever whatever Can your uh, specific video games i would love to know what the world health organization's view is on video games like is it yeah is it minecraft <laughs> is it grand theft auto is it like what is the world health organization it depends where you are in your life journey they have a, a oh, little is grid. that is that it? <laughs> they have a grid huh? <laughs> no i don't know uh, i'll need to go and look at that but but interestingly, I know that the Minecraft website, they changed their slogan. They do this in the game where the slogan changes every now and then for some, some uh, you know, cultural or, or, or timeous uh, events. And so their, their motto right now is gamers unite, but separately at your own homes. And so, uh, so I mean, Minecraft has is, is really been uh, such a great platform for people to connect. I read a couple of stories about people getting together in Japan. And I know you have something around this as well, but uh, people connecting in Japan who are, uh, I think they were either high school kids or, 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 or juniors, um, or as I would say from South Africa, primary school kids, um, who graduated, but because of the, the lockdown, they, they couldn't get together to actually graduate. And to them, that was quite traumatic. So. A couple of people came together, they built a school hall in Minecraft, and they had the kids sit at home in front of their computers and walk down the line and sit in the chairs, and they would go up the the the, the stage, and the teacher or whoever, the, the uh, principal or headmaster, would then uh, confer their, uh, I don't even know what you would call it. Um, their degree or whatever it was. Yeah, their, yeah, their certificate. Their, yeah. <laughs> and so, and it... And it was interesting. I mean, it made big waves. A lot of people have been talking about that, but just interesting to see how, again, it's something very simple. It's something that's very ordinary that has now been disrupted. And people are using Minecraft, which uh, to those of you who've never, who've never seen this is, <laughs> it, it looks like a game that was developed 20 years ago. Um, I mean, games from 20, 20 years, 20 years ago looked terrible, but that's how you would imagine they would look like 20 years ago. And it's just these little blocks. Uh, it's like Lego in a, in a digital yeah, environment. Every, everything's, everything's square, right? Yeah. It's like little blocks of, it's almost little blocks of pixelated people. So it's insane, but it is the largest, most sold video game in history, even beating out The Sims, which held that title originally. And so I saw that. I, I recently heard about a couple of people also getting together in a, a favorite British pub in a local town in, in England. And they can no longer get together and enjoy a, a good pint of beer. And that really upset a lot, a lot of the constituents. So someone decided to rebuild the bar in Minecraft. And so now people can get together at their own homes and socialize in Minecraft in, Minecraft in this, in this uh, pub. Uh, also read stories about people. There's there's two other interesting instances of people using this this uh, same platform. The one which is probably the most ludicrous was within the about the first eight days of of lockdown starting in the U.S. People were able to recreate the world on a one to one scale in Minecraft in eight days. It just took them eight days. Really? So one more than God. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. at least we still have that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and of course it is Minecraft so it's, it's very low resolution and and it's not a lot of detail but they they went and recreated that and it just showed you how human 
human ingenuity when there's nothing else distracting you can be poured into creativity and, and overdrive. And then, of course, the, the last thing, and we touched on this, or may have touched on this in one of the previous episodes, was uh, a union of journalists around the world who wanted to, to promote the free movement of information and news. And so they created this library within Minecraft, within one of their worlds, where people could go into the library and document stories and, and you know, some of the more sensitive uh, areas around the world where, where information is a little bit more limited, uh, people could go and go and access that. And so it was just interesting to, to see how people are using uh, Minecraft and these digital worlds to connect and stay connected and socialize and almost have a human touch without having a human touch. I, I saw that, I, I forget where it was. Um, it was an Eastern country, but they, uh, they had done something similar where they had taken, uh, usually what you see, uh, and I, I don't know what the version of the robot was they were using, but usually what you see them is, is uh, um, in kind of like telemedicine situations. So a lot of doctors now will have uh, essentially an assistant who's an actual assistant, but they're working from a distance location, but they have their face now on a iPad that moves around on a body and follows them around or on this, you know, essentially on wheels. And, and then they're doing the documentation on the other side, but that way they don't have to physically be in the room. They're just kind of you know, and so they did a graduation that way where they put, had everybody, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know what program they used, but they came in on an iPad and he saw their head on the iPad. And then there, they literally, you know, had people go from one person to the next passing diplomas, I guess. Uh, you know, it, it was just a really bizarre, different, different way to do things. I, I do think that it's interesting, um, when we look at this to think about how people will gather online, uh, the question is, does it create, does it create a divide between kind of haves and haves and have nots at that point? Because like, for example, right now, if you want a virtual reality headset, uh, even if you want one, you can't go buy one. Cause I mean, the, I mean, you can buy kind of lesser version ones, but like, if you want the new Oculus, uh, they're sold out. I mean, yeah. they're way sold out. And so, and, and, and I would imagine that's a technological trend that's happening. You know, I, I think yeah. there's probably other instances of that as well. And just to say, I mean, you, you say that and people might think, yeah, I mean, that's a very high end thing. You know, it's, it's not a, it's not a, a staple. Uh, so of course there would be limited supply on that, but interestingly, and I read this recently as well, as recent as this week, actually this article came out yesterday, that there is a, uh, there is a webcam shortage in the United States right now where, um, what's the company Logitech have reported. Oh, let me see. I just want to make sure I quote the right number. A hundred up to a 180% uh, jump in sales over the yeah. last three weeks. Yeah. Um, and they're busy finding people who are, are price gouging. So the article references, uh, this is an old Logitech web webcam, the C270. This webcam is like 14 years old. Yeah. They used to sell for like 25 bucks on Amazon. Yeah. If you want to buy one now, it's $130 and up. 
Nice. I got a couple extra Logitech. Uh, <laughs> no, no, but, you can make like, some good money now. Yeah, now, now is a great opportunity to no, no, but I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, it's crazy. Right. And, and look, I, I'm assuming we'll get to a point where, where, you know, if there's a need, someone's going to meet that need from a, you know, economic standpoint, but, uh, but it still kind of begs the question, like, you know, think up, think about how much, if you're, even if you're buying a webcam, the amount of qu- equipment you already have, yeah. right. You at least have a computer, uh, you yeah. at least have an internet connection, right. Mm-hmm. Which assumes some basic things that, you know, uh, and, and there's a lot of people in the world that don't have that stuff. And, yeah. um, and so what does, what does that do, uh, in that situation and, and, in a potentially life-threatening situation uh they don't have that you know have that now we might find out we might find out 12 months from now people that didn't have access um you know that didn't have access to the internet and didn't die of coronavirus they lived a lot less stressful lives over the course of of 12 months because they weren't connected that would be a fascinating thing to to find out right like um you know but but somehow i i'm not necessarily sure that that's uh that's the data we're gonna find out like it seems to me yeah if i would rather have people around me sick and dying and and i had the option to know or not know I would rather I would rather know what's going on so I can do everything I can do, even if my, you know, resources are limited, uh, because then you you know you know what your options are, or at least what's happening to you to some degree, right? Like um, a lot of people, if they get sick now, they they like they know not to go to the hospital if certain things are happening to them. They know don't bother the doctor, just ride it out. Uh, and unless you're at a certain, certain place. So I don't know. I, I think it's, a it's one of those things where we're going to see more and more of that, um, and trying to figure out, um, you know, trying to figure out how, how it is that we better interconnect people in ways that provide fairness, but also, um, but also allow, um, you know, allow opportunity because it seems to me that like, you know, what happens, what happens to people who are like, um, in poor urban areas, if the schools go online and they don't have access to equipment, are the schools going to start giving equipment out? You know what I mean? And what, what's going to happen for that? Like if, if, uh, you're in a situation where you can sell your iPad from school or, you know, you know, and, and, you know, bring home money to sustain your family or what do you, I mean, so I, I think there's just yeah. a, there's a wide variance of, of what people understand is happening um, versus not happening. And, and, um, and how we engage with that, I think is, is going to be, going to be interesting. I think what you're saying is on the one hand, it's, if we think about this revolution, um, it's almost as if we really focus on on the good that this has done in terms of connecting the world. So referencing the article you spoke about, you know, millions, millions get to know Jesus. So yeah, you know, this, this has created and forced us to think about leveraging technology we have to have a greater uh, reach and a greater impact and a, and a greater ease of connecting. But at the same time, what you're saying is we've missed 
we have fundamentally ignored and missed a certain segment of people who will now not have access to this. And I think if we think about the church, um, broadly speaking, it, it's sort of the physical location was sort of the great, the, uh, the great equalizer because you would have anybody walking in and, and, and anybody could enjoy, uh, you know, a space of time and a physical presence connecting with God. And if you're a beggar or a billionaire, it didn't matter. We all went to the same place. And I think when we think about the revolution, if I could call it that, that we're experiencing right now, we tend to think it's the same thing because of a sense of privilege uh, that we don't even realize. But the reality is that, yes, you know, we can now reach greater number of billionaires and and folks in the middle class but i do think you're right i think we have as a church and and potentially as a society as we start looking at as you say schools uh, potentially created uh, a new set of challenges and i don't think we've even really thought of that because we're doing damage control well i think there's also like we make some assumptions about people right we assume people um they take in content the way we take in content and they don't. Uh, I mean, it, they, people just don't. I mean, if you listen yeah. to kind of the top people who are content creators on the internet and they'll tell you that they're not on social media hardly at all. Uh, and usually what's happening was they become popular to a certain uh, level, you know, they might manage their own Twitter account, but anything else that's happening, they've hired somebody to do. So they're not even looking at it, right? They don't want to waste their time because they're creating, right? Um, so, you know, people who are creators are, are a lot of times not going to even take in that content. They may not look at other content that people uh, are, are doing because they're worried on about getting their own stuff out. I, I just think it's a, that's a different mentality than what we experience in, in the local church where there, we have some ground rules about, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's not all about me doing the thing. It's about, Hey, I, I need to involve other people and how do I get them engaged, uh, and, and what's going on. And so, in the internet, you don't have to do that, right? I mean, you can just create content and not listen to anybody else. Uh, and people become famous and wealthy um, because they don't listen to anyone else and because they just keep spewing stuff, right? And so, and so the thing is, is like, I don't know that that's particularly helpful because it, one, I don't know that are we creating virtuous content that way? Um, and, and when we look at it, how, how are we thinking about it? And then two, I, I think the other thing is, is we, we are taking these baby steps right now in our theology as to what it means to be online, but we're doing it all in real time in front of one another. And usually, you know, that's not how great theology necessarily had come to be. People would take time, um, you know, meditating about this, discerning what God has called us to, trying to figure those things out. And what's happening is, uh, and a lot of that happened in academia, but a lot of that happened in, the, in practical contexts in the church too. And right now, everybody is like trying to be first. First, 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 first. And if you don't get it out first, like, and maybe you were thinking about something and somebody else puts it out first, um, you know what I mean? And 
And it's like, well, was there any value to me thinking about it? And, and I would say, actually, there's huge value in us thinking about it. I, I look at communion. You, you talked about the Catholic Church. So I've seen some Catholic churches where they're, they have spiritual communion because obviously they believe it. The, they take the first part of this is my body and blood to do this in remembrance of me. They take that first part. This is my body and blood literally. So um, they, they have spiritual communion because they can't actually, you know, uh, partake together in the same way, um, you know, in, in churches that are kind of on the opposite side of that, where they take the, do this in remembrance of me and they take that part literally uh, this is a lot easier because it's just a remembrance anyhow and so that you know uh and then churches like that are in the reform tradition that are kind of in in between you know there there is the incarnational peace matters to them and they're trying to figure out how to deal with that but at the same time um we've not talked about it enough to say, okay, what's really going on when we take communion? Um, why did Jesus pick these elements? Were they just common elements to his time? You know, if he would have instead had Gatorade and Oreos, would he have taken those things? Right. And obviously in the biblical tradition, there's, there's, there's connections to the elements, but we also say they're common elements in the reform tradition. And we talk about there being spiritual present. What, what, what does it mean when we start thinking about this, when we start talking about the bread at uh, a particulate matter level? Like, is there some significance in the way that those particles are ordered? that the ones and zeros line up if we're going to go back to the simulation piece, right? Like, is there some significance in that or was it the intention behind what we're doing? And I don't think we've broken that piece out enough to start talking about it. And, and everybody's talking about it online and I'm looking at it and going, I want to know what you think about it from a virtual reality standpoint. If someone breaks virtual bread, uh, what are the implications of that? Uh, because it obviously doesn't have the same particulate matter ordering, yeah. but someone created bread and we use different kinds of bread every week in different places. Mm-hmm. And so how do we, how do we determine what bread is, right? I mean, <laughs> at that point, like it gets a really deep thing, but it has a Absolutely. very, has a very practical purpose because if you're in physical church, to your point, anybody can walk in and participate. And whether they understand what's happening or not, the mystery is still there, right? The question is, is now we're trying to demystify it to figure out the theological piece of it, right? Uh, and at the same time, we're saying the mystery is something we value. Uh, and so how do we keep those things together? And how do we make it so that more people can enjoy it? Uh, at the same time. So I've heard some traditions, they said, well, you know, you have to give ample time for people at home to make sure they have those elements there so that they have the opportunity to partake. That's not even a realistic response. If you're a, if you're a mom, you know, a single mom and you've got two or three kids, are you going to go to the store to get your communion elements and risk your kids getting coronavirus for that. No chance you're doing that, right? Like if you can't get something delivered to you. So, you know, and and then in the same token, what happens to folks that, um, you know, that have um, 
you know, they have physical limitations and they can't come to the physical church, they aren't able to necessarily partake in communion in the same way either. And so there are already things that create separation, right? And so how do we, do we, do we take a position of we're going to try to be as inclusive and as possible in these things or you know what I mean? What are the, what are the guiding principles on that? Uh, and and it, it becomes very difficult, I think. Um, and the other thing I see a lot of, and my traditions doing this is they say, well, you can do uh, digital communion in emergency circumstances. I'm like, what the heck's that even mean? Like, <laughs> what does that mean? It's like, Oh, global pandemic. Oh, it's okay. Go ahead. If you're, if your session thinks it's okay, you can, you can do it. But, but if it's, wow. you know, That's so funny. what, de- what determines an emergency at that point, like we've not done this work at all. And so, uh, I, I, I think part of that means we, we maybe have to t- take a step back and we have to start saying, okay, how can we, instead of just creating content, instead of just pushing, 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 like how can we say, how are we going to involve the most people? Uh, what are our actual goals? And what are the limitations of what we could actually do physically? And let's talk about what the digital space can do better than what the physical space and vice versa. And, and let's acknowledge those are different ways of doing church. And maybe they're not, one's not better than the other. Uh, maybe they're just different. And they, they allow us to do different things. And how do we use those, um, you know, as gifts uh, to move forward? I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure as we... I'm not sure we've got past the trauma of what has happened to us yet to be able to actually start processing this. Um, You know, and, and, and that's where, that's where I wonder maybe, maybe some of the things that are the reason you're seeing Minecraft is because that's a place people can go. And if they create something, they're not going to be chastised for it. Um, you know, if they, uh, yeah, I mean, what was, you know, it's like someone built the whole world, you know, they didn't get beat up for that. Uh, and you know, they probably changed some stuff because <laughs> they made it out of blocks. Right. Like, uh, so I, I, I don't know. I mean, what, what do you think when we, when we look at this, how do you think that, what do you think right now is the single largest impact, um, that you think will happen that will impact the church long-term from this? I think that this will radically force the church to rethink how they engage their constituents, why they engage their constituents, and how they add value as an entity, as an organization. And I, and I, I think about it as the institutional church, not not the not the body of Christ as a whole, but the institutional church has to answer the question: How am I, how am I, radically and meaningfully adding value to the journey that people have in discovering Christ? And the reason why I say that is, where I think a lot of churches will be presented in the next season with the challenge that. In the past, people would engage 
with their local church, be, be it because of culture, be it because of tradition, be it because of friendships that, that led them there and community. But because of this disruption right now, while people might be engaging with their congregation digitally, they're also exposed to other congregations. And I think that for a long time, and it pains me to say this, but for a long time, many churches within certain contexts enjoyed a certain level of membership and of, of people coming back and engaging simply because it was convenient, comfortable, and there was community. And I think that, you know, in this, in this season, people are firstly introduced to a different way. And I think a lot of people, well, that's unfair. I think a portion of people will enjoy doing that and they'll prefer doing that and they'll stick to doing that. Uh, and, and some of the sub thoughts I have around that would be, you know, for some people it's convenient. Um, not that I think convenience should be a, a primary driver, but for some people it's feasible, maybe a better word, to attend church on a different day or watch a recording or engage when when they can actually be present. And for others, I think they'll they'll discover communicators and understandings and traditions of theology that resonate with them in a different way. And so I think on 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 one level, the church has to radically rethink how they do what they do, and at the same time also be, and again, I you know it's it's bad using a capitalistic term in, in this context, but be competitive. Because suddenly the entire church around the globe is, has been put on the same playing field. And the fact that it's just down the road or the fact that your friends are there, those two things don't matter anymore. So I think those are the things that we'll be grappling with in terms of, of really meaningfully, deeply adding value to the lives of people going through that journey, but also being bastions and and institutions of light and hope in our community um i i, I thought i think it's um it's interesting that your observation i i one thing i heard from a pastor that she had she had been preaching online and what when she went to her older congregants what she found out was that they already had people that they watched on TV or online and she had no idea. And so, uh, they already had like favorites. And so they, and she wasn't one of them. And, and so they weren't watching her on Sunday when they couldn't go to church. They had people that they turned to, which has actually been my experience of, of, uh, kind of older American adults is that if they're if they're Christians, they have some kind of television personalities that they they will watch, or they have some you know. Um, but it it may be a thing where we start to see that the digital church and the physical church have different parts to play in people's lives, where the church may need to begin to instead of being uh, kind of in competitive in a way where we oppose one another uh, in ministry, where we find new ways where we have to synthesize with one another as, yeah. as kind of our competitive edge 
or else will cease to exist. And so, you know, maybe it is something where people, uh, and I, I wonder how that'll impact between big churches and little churches, because big churches, uh, big churches have certain value propositions to people and little churches have value propositions and they both have value propositions that the other can't give. Uh, big churches have resources and can do things to scale that little churches can't do. Little churches though can be relational in a way typically that big churches can't. Um, and so, uh, so it's an, it's an inner, and it doesn't mean that big churches couldn't develop those systems, but they haven't typically, uh, they, they aren't calling every person cause they, they don't have the bandwidth to do that. Uh, you know? And so, uh, it, I think that's interesting to think about how, how, how we're going to have to interact with one another and how we're going to have to be able to see value. I also think it's, it forces us to think about ecumenicism in a new way because, um, you can't just hold your people captive to your own theology anymore. You have to know your theology well enough that you can express what other people believe at some competent level. And I think if we do that in a way where we, there's two ways you can do it. You can either demean it, de demean people and say theirs isn't good enough. Um, or you can actually say, uh, like when we look at the sacraments, um, part of what I try to tell people is it's not about what God needs from us. It's about what we need from God. And so, um, so when we think about the sacraments, we think about what our beliefs are or what our needs are when we engage in the sacraments. It's why would I, why would I be upset if someone has a different belief uh, about that, if that meets a need for them, because it's certainly not, you know, we assume that, um, God is very worried about being right. <laughs> if God's God, then God's right. Uh, that's not our, <laughs> that's not the issue, right? It's, it's about how are we right in relationship to God? Um, and I don't see the sacraments as being the thing that, you know, we should be fighting over necessarily. Right. And so and there may be, there may be things, uh, that are more, and, and I know we're getting close on our time, but I do want to make sure we get to this article that you had about, uh, about zoom. There may be things about security and protection that actually are more important. Uh, you know, as we talk about loving one another and taking care of one another. And what we're finding is, is that's not always the case, right? Like <laughs> in zoom, there's been some kind of zoom catastrophes recently, right? Yeah, so we touched a little bit on this, I think, in the previous um, previous podcast and conversation that we had. But what's interesting is it's it's almost it almost ties into the conversation or some of the points that you had earlier, where you were saying, you know, churches are trying to rapidly uh, adopt and incorporate technology in in their repertoire of of engaging their people and 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 feeding their people and nourishing their people. But a part of the challenge is if you're not accustomed to implementing technology or using technology, you're going to, you're going to drop the ball somewhere. And that's really what's happening all around the world right now. I, I read a, a couple of articles, but really I, I just want to highlight the three that I found really interesting. The one was that uh, New York city schools, uh, public schools are now banning the use of zoom. 
Similarly, the government of Taiwan has also issued a ban of the use of Zoom within their, uh, what would I call it, um, uh, governmental institutions. Uh, and the third article was just about how thousands of Zoom calls have been left exposed on the internet, being open for people to join in and cause havoc. And really, havoc could be anything from, I, I've heard of some people joining calls and then just totally disrupting it and getting a, a whole host of other people uh, joining in for sort of a Zoom party and then recording the thing and then putting that on on um, social media so as a sort of a joke. And then I've heard of people uh, joining calls uh, stark naked um, and with they, a school context. Do they context. know that or not know that? <laughs> yeah, no, they they knew that. Yeah, okay, all right, well, Unfortunately, they're just not aware, right? Like. <laughs> I, I mean, I can I'm see that. Yeah, there's yeah. probably some Zoom bloopers too. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 I, oh, absolutely. And so, just in the season, you know, people have have seen an opportunity to to abuse something that's out there and abuse people who don't know how to take care of of implementing technology effectively. Most important, I read an article about Facebook, and I actually it might not have been Facebook; it was Google also banning the use of Zoom for their meetings because what has happened was you have a Zoom meeting, you don't password protect it, you don't have a waiting room set up or, or any of the security features that Zoom has. And then people join this conversation and they impersonate someone working at the company, which at something like Google is not hard just because of the sheer volume. And then they start sending people links in the chat saying, oh, hey, you need the software for this meeting and people download it and suddenly they have computers overflowing with viruses. Uh. And so what's interesting, I read all these articles and, you know, to be fair, there are certain security issues that Zoom needs to address in terms of how they handle encryption. They've, they've misled the public in terms of, of some of their statements. But the vast majority of issues that people have with Zoom security has nothing to do with Zoom security, but with people not knowing how to set up meetings that are safe. This isn't a Zoom issue. This is a, a human implementation issue. That's right. Yeah. And so that's the funny thing. You know, I say funny, but I look at this from a school perspective, from a government perspective, and from a church perspective. People trying to use technology as a band aid to fix this. And it comes back to the question you've asked is are people going to give up using this when we go back to normal, whatever that is? Or are they going to stick through the growing pains of actually figuring this out and using this as an effective tool to reach their existing congregation? So yeah, that was the the long and the short of it. But but just it it's it's well, and it really it really puts those two things kind of at odds too, right? Do we do the do we take the time? Uh, and what is the church's responsibility in this, right? So do we take the time to do our due diligence? to do something uh, in a way that's done well, or do we try to be first? And, uh, you know, sure. and, and our, our media globally has shown us that being first is what matters to them, right? Yeah. Like, uh, and, and we've seen that. And, and in some ways that's rewarded. Uh, and we reward that. And the question is, is so what are the, what are the kind of the checks and balances that we need to say, okay, well, um, how, how are we going to do this and protect people 
so that we don't put out false information. Maybe, um, maybe it's not helpful. We're getting all of our news from, you know, Twitter. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, maybe that's not good for us long-term. Um, it, we're getting, but maybe in some cases it is good. You know, maybe there are, uh, things that we've responded to more quickly that we wouldn't, wouldn't have. Uh, but then there's potentially other things where we're jeopardizing people needlessly, um, when we could have waited. I, I know of, um, cause I, I just know a lot of administrators in schools, uh, and I know that there's been tremendous pressure, particularly uh, in, in private schools or kind of even upper, uh, you know, kind of perceived upper echelon public schools uh, for things to move online quickly. And where people have not been prudent in learning the tech appropriately, they have had disastrous results. Uh, and that's been one of those things where they, the question is, is do we kind of have the, the leadership ability to say, you know what, I know you're screaming at me parent right now because you're struggling at home to kind of manage your child and parent your child. Uh, but realistically, we aren't going to just behave erratically because of this. We're going to take the time to do it well, do it right, because that's, excellence that we have we did not anticipate this um and and we recognize now that we we need to you know and and then to ask for grace as they figure that out um and whether we're going to give people grace to do that uh and i and i i think that's that's a larger conversation you know whether uh and maybe a future conversation about what does that look like to to actually extend grace in the digital world but um but I think we're just on the very front end of this and uh, we're going to have plenty of time to have those conversations. Hopefully Absolutely. we can, we can be uh, intentional about it. I look forward to it. I mean, there's a couple of things that you mentioned where I'm like, Oh man, I wish we had more time just to delve into, you know, bread, just the, the concept of bread. And is that something you can translate digitally? Um, on, on just as a, a light last note, um, you talk about what is bread, you know, okay, so bread is, I'm, I don't bake, but I know bread has flour in it. And, uh, you know, here's my little Duncan, the South African segment for the podcast. When uh, my parents moved over here, we... Eggs? Uh, eggs. <laughs> I know eggs are in there, but the eggs are the same. The uh, flour is different. Okay. Right? So we have a lot of South African dishes and specifically desserts that, that I love. And so my mother, for special occasions, would make a specific South African dessert. And for the first year, every time she made that, it would be something would be wrong with that. It, the texture would be off, or it would be uh, it would taste a little different, and we couldn't figure out what it was. And a couple of months into the to the the journey, we realized that American flour is far more grainy than South African flour. And the taste is different, the consistency is different, and the end result is different. And so we were able to, on the black market, source South African flour. Um, and now we have, we have <laughs> the goods we're used to, people in, in suitcases flying with bags of white stuff. It's just flour. <laughs> um, but the, it begs the question, you know, if you bake it with a different type of flour, is that is that still the sort of bread that you're expected to have communion with? Um, 
Well, yeah, I mean, and obviously, depending on where you are in the world, uh, the tradition of how people make bread is is often vastly different. Yeah. Vastly different, and so so maybe how bread is supposed to be in the digital environment is is different also you know uh so it's it's really interesting to me because if one of the things that we expect is that other people will be able to partake in it there's an assumption there as well right and i almost wonder if we've created we assume that like juice for example uh or some fruit of the vine is widely available and i would imagine there's places that it's just not yeah. Uh, and so are we becoming exclusive in that? And, and, you know, is that the love that Christ is telling us to share with one another, or is there something else going on in that moment that we need to consider? And, and I think that when we start thinking about that, it's like, you know, when we're putting together our zoom presentation or our Minecraft world or robot graduation right like we have to think about like is how is this conveying love to people uh and how are we actually caring for people in this environment and if we're not doing it to the best of our ability maybe we need to to hold up or or maybe this is the best expression we can have in the time um that that we find ourselves in and that becomes transformative uh you know no matter you know, what alternative reality we're in. Um, and that, and that maybe is the ultimate disruptor, right? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, a good challenge that I'll take into some of my <laughs> weekend video game sessions. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. So, so, you know, shoot, shoot those guys in halo with all your Christian love. I, uh, <laughs> it's, it's not the other team I'm worried about. It's my own team. Yeah. You know? Okay, good, good, good. Well, re- there's, there's, a, there's probably a, a deep theological conversation in respawning too. So uh, we, can, we can have that on another podcast. So. Uh, great. That's awesome. Well, hey, uh, Christopher, thank you for yet another great conversation, uh, stimulating and, and uh, enriching. I look forward to the next one. And um, have a blessed uh, Easter weekend. Yeah, and happy Easter to everybody out there. Happy Easter, everyone. Uh, God is not bound by time or space. Uh, so even if you get this after Easter, uh, we, we pray that your Easter is a blessed one. <laughs>